All right, let's study some Torah together. The uh, Torah portion is Truma, which is Exodus chapter 25 through 27. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll say a blessing and then we'll uh, launch in. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, who makes us holy through your mitzvot and who has given us the mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. Amen. Okay, so Parsha Truma. Now Moses is on top of the mountain. At the end of last week's portion, it says, Moses went inside the cloud and ascended the mountain, and Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so during that time, Moses received these instructions. The next portion begins. And yod spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart is so moved. And then it describes the gifts, which are specifically in order to build a mikdash, a sanctuary. And it says, Ba'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham and build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. And the other word for mikdash is in the next verse. Here, I'll show you this, I'll show you the text. This is what I was just reading. And then here are all the gifts that are to be brought, gold and silver and copper, blue, purple, crimson yarns, linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dolphin skins. We actually don't know what techashim are, uh, that they translate as dolphin skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and the incense, lapis lazuli, and other precious stones for setting for the ephod and the breast piece. And then it says in this famous line, basuli mikdash b'shachanti b'tocham. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle. Okay, so this word tabernacle is mishkan. And the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make it. And then... Uh, the rest of the portions describes in beautiful detail how to make all of these appurtenances. The linen, the, the, the cloths that hang on the sides, the clasps, the rods, the pole, the ark, the menorah, the, everything that will make up the Mishkan is described in really beautiful detail. As I've said for years, boring detail until you invest in it and it becomes really beautiful to picture all of this being made. Um, and um, Sylvia 
sent me a link to an article, an essay by Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb this morning that I was looking at that was discussing the Shekhinah. And I decided let's spend time exploring Shekhinah as um, um, a term, a name for God and a name that evolves through the centuries. And also, um, uh, uh, so I wanna start by saying, so the word Shachen means to dwell. A Shachen is a neighbor in modern Hebrew. Uh, and um, uh, a Shechuna is a neighborhood in modern Hebrew. And uh, uh, when God says, Asuli Mikdash, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among you, the word for dwell is Shachanti. And in Hebrew, as some of you know, when you take a verb like dwell, and you put a mem in front of it, letter mem, and you make it into a noun, mishkan, that means the place of dwelling. So the mishkan, which is tabernacle in its traditional uh, translation, I needed to look up tabernacle, but I didn't have a chance yet. If anyone wants to do it, you can tell us uh, what the origin of that word tabernacle is. The indwelling place, this, the Mishkan is where the dwelling happens of the divine presence. Um, again, it's good to know that little bit about Hebrew because Mikdash comes from the verb Kadosh, holy, or sanctity. Mikdash is the place of holiness. And so whenever you see a Hebrew word that begins with a mem in front of it like that, much of the time it's gonna uh, represent the place where that happens. And Ellen Weaver says, yes, to take in the rich descriptions and to feel into it as a dwelling place for us, surrounding and supporting each of us. Thank you, Ellen. So a mishkan is a sanctuary and literally in Hebrew, it's the place where the divine presence dwells. Okay, the divine presence in is made into a noun form in Hebrew from the same root, Shekhinah. Shekhinah is the divine, um, the experience of the divine as dwelling with us, being among us, being close to us, all of that. So. Um, it's quite beautiful. So the Mishkan is where we feel the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, the nearness of God. In describing God, we get stuck all the time because we have nouns that describe it all. And a I think a better way to understand it is how we experience the divine. Sometimes we experience the divine as cosmic majesty, right? That's the king, as it were, Melech of Ha'olam, the sovereign of the universe, remote, awe-inspiring. At other times, we experience the divine as 
nurturing, intimate, close to us, feeling with us. That's when we use the word shechina as a experience of the divine. Oh, Robin, thanks for looking it up. So tabernacle simply derives from the Latin for tent or hut. Okay, good. But Mishkan is much more evocative than that, obviously. Um, um, ohel is tent. And the other word for the Mishkan in the Torah is the Ohel Moed, which means the tent of meeting, which is beautiful, right? Because it says the same thing as Mishkan, the place where you actually encounter that experience of the divine. In the Torah, Shechina is not a term you hear. You hear the verb Shechin, to dwell. You hear the word for the dwelling place. But the word Shechina as an attribute of God doesn't start appearing until the time of the Talmud. In other words, the Torah, the biblical period, you might say wraps up in like the second century BCE. And then after the canon has been fixed, the commentaries and the stories and the telling about and the Midrashim, they start to become a huge body of lore. That emerges in what we call the rabbinic period. And Marsha just wrote, I always thought Shechina was the feminine version of God. Exactly. And what I'm telling you in terms of timeline is why you understand it as that. Because it is in the Torah, that's not, there's nothing feminine about the Shechina. The Shechina isn't even a term in the Torah. Even though the verb is there, this particular noun construct isn't there. It comes about in the Talmudic period. In the early, in late, in early and late antiquity, in the sec, you know, or two thousand years ago, and so the rabbis start to discuss the shechina as um, an aspect of God, and they identify it as feminine, but only in that Hebrew is Hebrew is gendered, and so. A noun is either a masculine noun or a feminine noun. And shechina is a feminine noun. So let me, let me um, uh, just look at a document and share with you some references in the Talmud to um, shechina. Whenever a person studies Torah, the shechina or people, the shechina is with them among them. Whenever ten are gathered for prayer, there the Shekhinah rests. These are different quotes from the Talmud. The Shekhinah dwells over the, head, the bedside of the sick man's bed. Whenever the children of Israel went into exile, the Shekhinah went with them. It's beautiful. Um, and there are many, many references like that. Uh, so, as Ellen writes, Shekhinah as the indwelling presence, therefore the feminine nurturing aspects 
of the oneness. Um, yes, well said, well said. It's not really until the Middle Ages that the Shekhinah takes on a distinctly feminine identity. Um, and that happens in the Kabbalah, in the, in the mystical literature of the Zohar. The Zohar is absolutely unapologetically uh, mythic, Rococo, uh, making up incredible, wonderful metaphors for God. It's like the essence of um, enthusiasm and excess as a way to try to describe the holy experience as opposed to another way, which would be to, to retreat into wordlessness and contemplation. If you follow what I'm saying, whenever you're considering the nature of the infinite, there seem to be two options. One is to recognize that you can't say anything. And the other is to say everything. You know, Jewish mysticism says everything. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's like a, a phantasmagorical. It's really fun to study. But uh, I suggest you take a friend and a, um, someone who might know the roadmap a little bit. <laughs> Because otherwise, it's like, what the heck is this? It's like, uh, so in the mystical literature, the Shekhinah gets a distinctly feminine, nurturing, uh, sexual, um, ident archetypal feminine um, identity. In the Kabbalistic tree of life, the Shekhinah is still that aspect of the divine that we can experience as close to us, as near us. The other attributes of the divine ascend beyond human perception. Uh, but the Shekhinah is the mom, the, the one who's holding us, the one whose presence love we feel, even when we're far away all of that. So in the Middle Ages, the Shekhinah gets a distinctly feminine and feminized uh, identity. And in fact, uh, in the Kabbalah, the goal of doing most mitzvahs is to unite the Shekhinah, the feminine attribute with the distinctly feminine attribute of the divine with Tiferet, the, the sun, S-U-N, the distinctly masculine so that they can unite. And for a moment, you through your holy actions, bring it all together, right? You unite opposites. In Jewish mysticism, the purpose of doing mitzvahs is to unite the opposites of God so that you feel the oneness of all. Um, and I said it very simply, it gets said thousands of different ways in Jewish mystical literature. Shabbat and the Shekhinah become identified as one in the Middle Ages by the mystics because Shabbat is the bride. Shabbat is the queen. And 
Shabbat is the Shekhinah, and we welcome this feminine felt presence of God into our midst, especially on Shabbat. Um, and again, this is something we can, that gets elaborated on all the most beautiful ways. There's a teaching in the Zohar that on the, what's going on on top of Mount Sinai right now is holy intercourse. And there's a, a telling in the Zohar that I didn't know about that on top of the mountain, the ma masculine attribute of God and the Shekhinah, so the Tiferet and Shekhinah are uniting and the Shekhinah gives birth to the Ten Commandments, which is then that Moses gets to experience that, that holy bliss and generativity, blah, blah. We can go on and on about this. Uh, Cynthia says, is the transition into the nurturing mother during the Middle Ages in any way response to correlation of the cult of Mary that arose after the Crusades? I'm so glad you mentioned that. Art Green, my teacher, wrote a long article comparing the um, cult of the Shekhinah in Jewish mysticism to the cult of Mary in wider uh, circles in that area. It probably is very much related to the cult of Mary um, as the Mary being the mother, the accessible mother, very much so. Art wrote a fascinating article about that, that no one's, nobody talks about it too much, even though he wrote this great article about it. Yes, just like you read in the Zohar stories that make you, that feel like sort of medieval chivalric stories. Uh, there's a, all of those cultures that penetrate in the Middle Ages. So the Shekhinah develops this, um, oh, and, and Ellen said, and with the mystics in spot, a huge goal is becoming a resting place, a mishkan for the Shekhinah, not only the joining of masculine and feminine. Uh, Ellen, do you wanna unmute and say any more about that? I'd love it. I don't remember much more. I was studying with Ruth Van Kagan, who's in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of years ago, but, it, but it's become my big goal is whenever I can be a resting place for the Shekhinah, whether that's in the Merkava and the chariot that's moving, but, or in just the stillness. And I don't remember. Oh, that's great. Make me a Mishkan make me a sanctuary so the Shekhinah might dwell in my midst, becomes a mystical and experiential yeah. role. Have a resting place because it's a, it's a big job being yep. a Shekhinah. <laughs> oh, Cynthia, I'll see if I can dig up that article. And thank you for bringing it up. Um, okay, so the reason I'm giving you all this history is because I like history. The Shekhinah, so the Shekhinah is very present and more so as a feminine archetype and descriptor of God as Jewish history develops. But the Shekhinah really hits the big time in our generation because of feminism. Um, and that's because when, as women, and that's why I don't want to be the only one talking today, for sure. <laughs> as, um, 
as women determined to enfranchise themselves and have their voices heard, that also applied to women involved in Jewish study. And so when God has only been portrayed really as a king, that's the word, Melech HaOlam, king of the universe, king of the universe, that's all we ever heard, right? Lord, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, king of the universe. You want to look in the texts for some other monikers, you know, for some, you want to, one wants to see oneself reflected in the cosmos, you know. Um, and so the most um, available and rich, this incredibly rich mystical metaphor of the Shekhinah as the feminine presence. Uh, Abigail made a beaded Shekhinah. I've seen it, haven't I, Abigail? Are you going to get it? Okay, I hope she's going to get it. I'll spot later. It's just a beautiful thing that, uh, ah, oh, I remember that. Here, let me spotlight you. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, let me go back to gallery view so I can see everybody. Um, is Abigail still spotlighted? How do I do that? No, okay, good. All right. Um, so I think it's been a really important um, development uh, thanks to feminism, thanks to women saying, hey, we want to sit at the table, that the idea of Shekhinah has become elevated into the mainstream of Jewish life. Um, and um, I thought about all this because Sylvia uh, sent me an article by Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, a real pioneer of Jewish feminism um, that I was reading this morning about her, um, about, Okay, here's what I want to say. And this, I, this is really going to be a conversation. This is where I wanted to get to, having shared all this. So it's really beautiful that we have a, a really venerable, ancient name for God that has been specifically feminine, right? Shekhinah. It gives us a doorway into changing our language about God. We can talk about Shekhinah instead of Arunai. And we're still talking about God, but we're using a feminine word. It's a beautiful thing. And as we move into this um, time that I certainly am like trying to keep up with where, so, so that then can reflect in say a Jungian sense or a mythical sense on the, on the, dualities of the cosmos. So the masculine qualities of, um, that get called masculine, but we're not talking about men. And this is where it gets really confusing. The masculine qualities of Tiferet 
who penetrates Shekhinah, who becomes the, rece the receiver of the divine overflow and gives birth to the world. Shekhinah is known as the subloon as the moon because the moon reflects the sun. And all of this, this still reflects a hierarchy of some kind um, that can be troubling. If, um, if, we get, if we continue to get confused by the idea that men are this way and women are this way, as opposed to attributes that get, uh, that get labeled as masculine and as, as, attributes that get labeled as feminine. Now that we're into a time when we don't, when many people do not want to assign these archetypes in any way to um, our everyday life, because they are, as, as Sylvia just wrote, troubling and binary. Oh, um, thank you, David. Uh, uh, Cynthia, did you see David's uh, Kagan's um, chat? That's the article. I really enjoyed it. Um, Troubling and binary. Ellen Weaver wrote also Rachamema from the word Rechem, El Shaddai for Shaddaiim breasts. Yes, once we open this door, God, as we understand it, can, has both masculine and feminine names, nurturing words, nurturing terms, uh, awe inspiring terms non-binary terms, the well of living waters, the, uh, the tree of life. It's like the more the merrier, right? When we come to naming God, that was certainly the strategy in the, the Reconstructionist prayer book where they decided to translate the name of God into English in a hundred different ways throughout the book to keep us from becoming fixated. Um, uh, so, and it says, and as Blaise says, God is non-binary. And uh, obviously, yod hey vav hey is a verb. It's an action word. yod hey vav hey is um, causes to be. Um, that's, what, that's what it probably means. That which causes to be. The, 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 the creative, the creative force itself, you know. So we don't have to be um, stuck with a masculine or a feminine. And so it's fascinating to me to read Rabbi Lin's article and think we've worked so hard to elevate the Shekhinah as an attribute of God what are we going to do with language now? Um, there are beautiful, I'm reluctant. So, so now I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna spit it out. Um, Human beings occupy a spectrum, but it's obvious that the, the, the spectrum is masculine and feminine and everything in between and both. 
And it's obvious that most of, nat- most of the natural world has for whatever reason in, in this astonishing creation been organized for uh, sexual reproduction, right? The whole, it's all just happening everywhere. The, the fertilizer and the fertilized, the, uh, you know, like, so here we are. So I don't wanna shy away from uh, gendered names. I want to actually find a way to loosen up, um, but the loosening up, it feels like the opposite of loosening up to now insist that we restrict ourselves to language that doesn't reflect our experience. and um, I wondered what other people thought about that. If you have anything to say about it, just do. It's like, of all things, me as a man, a cisgendered, privileged man who always identified as a boy and then as a man, even though you know my 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 journey has been very much my own. Uh, don't want to lecture a whole bunch of you on on this stuff. That would seem to be exactly what not to do. But I did want to express myself. Um, I wonder if anyone has anything else to say about it. The thing that bothers me is when they use when people use they and them, but they're only one person. Oh well, this is like the nub for us grammar nerds. I know, I know. Drives I'm me crazy. Me, I get it. I get it. But beyond 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 that, uh, Betty, which I also find to be, you know, uh, challenging, um, uh, there's a real point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yes, Ellen. And, and um, the they and them thing is like a step along the way, which I hope comes out somewhat differently, but I don't know how. It's, um, I do think it's really important to maintain the whole spectrum with the masculine and the feminine and the everything in between, as you said, Jonathan, because that's reality. And um, I think when things begin to change, there's an awful lot of clumsiness in the changing and and kind of struggling and insistence. And that's, that's just sort of how things tend to begin. And hopefully it will just become sort of normal and we'll have better language and whatever. That's- Oh, I understand. The question that one of the questions that Rabbi Lynn brings up in the article Sylvia sent me is that what do we do as Jews studying all these ancient texts that come from uh, uh, patriarchal, hierarchical societies? And then we yeah. read them again and again. Does that reinforce them uh, in us? Not for me. When I sort of came back to Judaism, actually because of you and Woodstock, um, 
I I couldn't read a lot of the things that were he and him and Lord. I just, you know, or I'd cross them out in the books and change. The, and that was true for a, a while. And as I got more and more Jewishly educated and understood the huge expanse of Judaism itself, it was like I can do either. Like I could only pray in feminine God language for a number of years. And now in my own practice, I do either. When I'm with other people, it's just, it is what it is. I don't think it has to be the stumbling block that it may be, again, in the beginning of how do, how do we work with this? Mm -hmm. So now I'm happy reading any of it, though I most like when it includes everyone. Mm, thank you. Um, what that made me think about, Ellen, Oh, uh, Sylvia. Well, she said something which reminds me of you. She says that when she talks about the Torah, she talks about it something from a long, long time ago, and maybe it's true, you know, which might, made me think about how you talk about it as literature as, as opposed to history. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think looking at it like that, you don't have to be so fixed. And I, from what I recall in the article is she talked about God being fluid. So uh, if it's fluidity, that people are perhaps identified differently at different times of their lives and maybe God's presence is different. So I don't know what kind of name you could use, whether it has, it, I guess it can't be like a he or a she. Uh, but it's a, a fluid experience. You know, some of us haven't, I, I have not had a fluid experience. I've always identified as female. Mm -hmm. But many people, as you know, as they age, do change how they see themselves. Uh, and thank certainly you. trans people don't experience themselves as how they were born. Yeah, so um, I, I don't know. No, 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 that's very helpful to me. And this is why I wanted to talk about it with you to help me, uh, which is that gender fluidity doesn't deny gender. Um, it just means that it can be fluid. And certainly approaching the divine as fluid is the perfect term because fluid means it's always moving and always changing. Uh, it's not static. And I think, so I think the fixed, so I think, I think, I think long ago for me internally, I uh, abandoned and the fixed binary of what the divine is. So this is what we've been talking about for decades with me is that, that God is life unfolding. God is by definition a fluid and ever moving presence. The name of God is a verb. And so if that we're made in the divine image, then we too are always fluid and unfolding. And uh, we don't have to be attached to uh, um, a rigid, any rigid terms about ourselves. That is so helpful for me to phrase it that way. Um, uh, Cynthia, I'd love to hear what you're thinking. So um, I'm, I'm following, um, this is a great conversation. I'm really glad I'm here. Um, I'm following on um, what Ellen said, 
because in the same way that, that you got Ellen back into Judaism, Ellen, you and Ellen helped get me back into Judaism because I was a serious pagan and <laughs> saw, saw the goddess. And that was, that was the only way I could, I could interpret <clears throat> any kind of, of being um, of, of, of any ultimate sort. And um, when Ellen started the Rosh Chodesh group in, uh, in the old building, and I started going, I thought, why? And I said, I was furious. I said, how come in Hebrew school, they never told us anything about, you know, God being, having any kind of feminine aspect whatsoever. It would have, it would have kept me there for, you know, the decades that I left. And, and that was so empowering and so eye-opening and extraordinary. I mean, the only thing I knew about anything um, uh, feminine in, in, in God and Judaism was Lilith, and that was a bad thing. Um, uh, people may not know about Lilith. Uh, if you, we can, we can just footnote that and talk about it in a minute. Okay. So, um, so, that, was, so that was an extraordinary piece. And um, what was the second part? Um, and so just the notion growing from that, that, um, that, that a goddess and a, and a god are one and the same being and aspects of the same being or the same essence, the same um, incarnation of self um, is, is, was absolutely what brought me back to Judaism and, and has been Shekhinah is, I mean, as you know, um, Ellen took a piece of our barn wood and said and wrote Mishkan in a sculpture that hangs in the front of our of our doorway. That was part of a vision that I had in the very first, you know, one of the very early Rosh Chodesh meetings. So full circle. It's lovely. That is a really full circle. Ellen, isn't that beautiful? Oh, oh, thank you, Cynthia. Because this is going back a long time in our in our history. That's so beautiful. Um, yeah, Naomi? back to 92 or 91. Yeah, 30 years ago, 30 yeah. years. Yeah. And you were the one who asked me to start the Rosh Kodesh group, so. I know, isn't that lovely? Yes. Yes, yes, I'll, I'll take credit for some humility. Yes, thank you. Um, hi, so I don't know if this is even still where we are, but. I That's was, okay. Okay, um, I was thinking about the they, them, and how when I first started to hear that, for me, there was some resistance to that also being kind of like a grammar and English nerd and, you know, wanting everything correct. But it kind of reminds me of how you refer to Torah as like a myth and almost like these mythic proportions. It's really just symbolic to me now as like, um, it goes beyond the literal, right? We're talking about the binary of he, him, she, her, as a very literal, um, you know, way of interpreting these binaries, and they like them either either or, right? Yeah, exactly. And they them is for better or for worse, with the limitations of our English language, is a way to take this beyond and incorporate both and everything. Well said. Well said. Uh, there were more hands up. Uh, uh, Marshall, is your hand up? Who's uh, Blaze is raising her hand, but there was another hand up too. Uh, yeah, Marsh, you go and then Blaze. No, I guess uh, it's a great discussion. And it just, I guess I just, it just shows this discussion how important it is 
to have all our voices kind of you know what you said rabbi jonathan we we want to see yourself reflected we want to hear our voice and um you know it, it's interesting i was thinking you know what happened that we you know the rise of shahina and and then feminism and i wonder if it you know uh it relates to uh when literacy began to enter you know women's years and that we could write our stories but you know i mean and it's just you know when we read the torah we want to hear the woman's perspective you know i'm in another group and we wanted to hear uh, dina's dina's voice we never hear it and you know and the same thing with you know um you know binary versus fluid you know all these voices have been you know silenced or reported maybe not intentionally i don't know you know but people you know we all want to hear our voices it's just mm -hmm. so essential that's mm -hmm. all well said well said here's an image that it brings to my mind i think of if each of us if every human being and i'll just be anthrocentric anthropocentric here i won't talk about all the other creatures if if every human being is an expression of consciousness, then divine consciousness would be if we could see every human being's perspective at once. I love thinking about that. Each of us is only like a little, we're just sort of popping up above the water a little bit, but what if all, but the, God's point of view would be seeing through everyone's eyes at the same time. I like thinking about that. And I, I just wanted, I, I, I'm also I'm just reading a book, uh, totally different time period, but my dear Hamilton, and it's the perspective of Eliza Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's wife. And it's like, oh my God, it's so eye-opening. And we've never heard her voice. It's, wow. Well said. Blaze? Um, You're muted. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. Um, I've had the opportunity to become acquainted with a number of trans people and people who are non-binary. And I really look at this as a really great opportunity for me to become more familiar with all of that. Um, I've been watching a new program uh, on Netflix by Jonathan Van Ness. I don't know if any of you know who he is, but he, I should probably say they, although I don't know what pronoun Jonathan uses. Uh, he is one of the five guys on the Fab Five of the program Queer Eye. Jonathan always, or mostly wears skirts and very um, elegant attire that is normally ascribed to female. And in he has a new show on called Getting Curious, I think it's called, with Jonathan Van Ness. And the last one I watched was about being non-binary and how that has um, affected a lot of people who are really not recognized in the society and whose voices have been silenced. And at the end of the program, there's a round table talking about the traditions of, you know, back in the I don't know, middle ages or before men wearing women's clothing was, you know, very common. 
and now it isn't. And for people who identify as non-binary to have a voice and be seen is very important, not only for them, but I think for the rest of us. And I have learned to use the they, them program pronouns. It's been difficult, I will say, but I'm learning how to do that and to be conscious of that. And um, I think it's just partially a matter of education. Like Jonathan said, he doesn't, he, here we go, identify with either being male or female, but maybe both or neither. And I think, you know, the more people that we have a chance to be introduced to and to get to know, whether it's in person or whether it's through some kind of programming, is really important to know. And then I also wanted to mention, because we've talked about this in the past, that book called Torah Queries, which I haven't read, but I think I would like to read it. And um, I'm wondering if it's possible. I don't know if that addresses any non-binary um, characters in the Torah or whether, you know, but anyway, it would be kind of, it would be kind of fun to just take a look at that as a group, maybe if anybody's interested in, um, because that seems to be connecting this with Torah, which I love. And also love what you said about seeing everybody through God's eyes, seeing everything all at once as having equal value. Anyway, it was on John Van Ness's Getting Curious program that I learned about this Native American tradition because there was a, a Native person on the program talking about the two spirits and how the hunters would be out hunting and the gatherers would be out gathering and the two spirits would be at home with the children, taking care of them and teaching them about their, um, their wonderful role, their wonderful job, their wonderful duty, their wonderful beings. Uh, so anyway, that's all I wanted to say. It's all wonderful, thank you, Blaise. Uh, what a great title, Getting Curious. That's, that's really inspiring actually, because that's all it takes is being willing to be curious without, without jumping to judgment or protecting yourself against the thing that makes you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Really nice title, Getting Curious. Uh, uh, Naomi, I'll recognize you in a second. Uh, Cynthia said, for an extreme take on the feminine aspect of God, there's an, or, there's a, an initiative called Beit Torata, which is a weekly meeting that rereads the Torah in the feminine and with a majority of female characters. Moshe becomes Moshe, for example. Ellen Trebowasser is also very engaged with this. And it's an Israeli woman who has decided to, two Israeli women, who have decided to literally retranslate the Hebrew Torah and they switch the masculine. Everything switch. It's like a, the funhouse mirror. Right. And so Miriam becomes a man and, and, and it's all very disorienting. <laughs> very disorienting, but it really opens up some interesting windows. That's fascinating. Why not? You know, and uh, Kolchai down in New Paltz has a women's circle, women's circle, and a non binary circle. And uh, oh, um, yes, um, uh, Ellen's reminding me that. Uh, Reb Zalman used to say that Moses was making love with the Shekhinah for 40 days. That comes out of the Zohar. 
He wasn't just making that up. That what, what does it mean to meet God? Moses is in the cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. What metaphor are you going to use? God could be the lawgiver, and Moses is there taking notes. Or maybe this knowledge is being transmitted through lovemaking, right? Why not? But when you I'm, come upon God, what can you do but fall in love? And the Zohar doesn't shy away from any of that. The Zohar is still a 13th century document. So the masculine and feminine are very specific um, and hierarchical. But the, the, one of the beautiful things about the Zohar for us moderns is it gives us the doorway into an imag really imaginative Judaism that the writers of the Zohar never shied away from. What's it mean to meet God? Sure, maybe it was a 40-day love fest on the mountain with Shrina. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and uh, Russ Jennings says, there's a good article in New York Times by John McWhorter, who's a linguistics professor at Columbia, about gender pronouns. I really like reading his columns, Russ. He's an interesting guy. And uh, uh, Naomi, feel free to uh, share what you just wrote or anything you want to say. Oh, sure. Um, well, I was just overhearing Charlotte on Zoom classes when she was doing her, um, her major in Jewish studies and the teacher was talking about the different words. And it was, I think it was about, um, I forget the title of the class, but it was about how there are words in Torah for people who don't identify as female or male, uh, yes. or identify as both, and that, you know, indicating that it's really quite endemic to just human nature. It's not like a new thing that we're experiencing like, now, you know. Oh, uh, let me speak about that a little. Okay. In the Torah, there's no words like that. However, in the Talmud, which is much less, which is much uh, more extensive and free form than the Torah is, in the rabbinic Talmud, they readily identify um, androgynous people, um, uh, people who are sexless, people of indeterminate gender. Yes. They're, all, they're all part of the Talmud and they, ha and they have words for it. Um, and again, because the Talmud is not, is, is, uh, is, 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 preoccupied deeply with categories um, and with who gets to do what. And uh, so they're trying to figure out which category applies to these, to these not explicitly male or female people that they know, right? But just the fact that they identify them means that it was part of their it was part of their world. They were aware of it as well as anybody else was. Um, uh, it's so funny. That, um, growing up in the 50s or 60s, uh, where, where we were in a particularly rigid moment about sexual uh, and gender identities and to then kind of wake up from that and realize, oh, people have been talking about this all along. David? Yeah, that's that's almost exactly what I wanted to talk about. I, I was born in 1960 and uh, I had an, a brother. I had two older brothers and I feel like the oldest one experienced the 60s. And I feel like I kind of was like just 
just sort of a little too young. You know, I, I, I don't identify from the 60s, but I look now and I have kids um, who are 17 and 20. And I, I, I think about the changes. My 20 my year old doesn't he can't relate to the 60s at all. You know, he just finds it completely weird. But as I I, I also consult for the TMI project, which is a wonderful organization, social justice through storytelling, which includes LGBTQ issues. And um, as I as I look at the 60s and I look at the present day, I think there's a really interesting and wonderful evolution that's going on. The 60s was a time of this sexual revolution. And of course they were experimenting in all kinds of ways, but it was also very polarized. And it was polarized not only interpersonally, but also politically. There was just a tremendous polarization going on. And when I look at what's going on now, there are so many different kinds of stories that are beginning to emerge um, in the LGBTQ arena. But one of them, I think this, this non-binary, maybe one story even within non-binary is or, or, or in gender fluidity is, you know, enough of all this sexuality. I'm a human being. I'm not this or that. You know, why, why are you, why do you keep lowering me down to my sexuality? Um, and even in my own experience, I'm not, I don't always feel sexual. I, you know, I don't always feel like a man. So, and, you know, so the, I, what I what I love about it is that here is a new generation that's coming forth with a new wisdom that they're bringing to the culture, and I just I just love that. Thank you, David. Huh. Okay. Well, I guess I have to wrap up. Um, yes, gender and sexuality or sexual orientation are not the same. Cynthia reminds us, and uh, we have to keep being reminded of that all the time. Uh, but I guess I'll wrap up by saying that, you know, I've always identified as a Reconstructionist Jew because Reconstructionism grew out of the progressive 1930s as a philosophy, of, an approach to Judaism that understands that everything is always evolving and that we need to study and approach Judaism also as a living uh, culture and civilization that continues to evolve. And so here, that's what we're doing. And Mordechai Kaplan, the founder, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan said, one of his most controversial and famous sayings was, tradition has a vote, but not a veto, which is very catchy and so worth remembering. Tradition has a vote, but not a veto. Um, meaning that, and as he insisted, and as I've tried to do, that you really wanna know what the tradition says because we don't have a corner on wisdom, right? In fact, wisdom may reside in the most ancient lineages that we can study. That's where, you know, we didn't, we didn't make the world. On the other hand, this, just like you were saying, David, we have to learn things from the next generation as the as as the human story keeps unfolding. So, um, so that's what I was thinking. Uh, Naomi said, "Okay, Vicky, I hope you appreciated this." Um, and 
So Naomi said they are high school students and it explores so much about teenagers as humans. Oh, there's a great show called Sex Education on Netflix that explores what we're speaking of, not from a Jewish standpoint, but from a humanistic standpoint. And they are high school students and explore so much about teenagers as humans beyond gender and sexual orientation. Thanks, Naomi, I might try to watch that. And so important to get to know that next generation too. Oh boy, as my mother would say, do I have to? You know, <laughs> that sort of feeling. <laughs> Ellen, it'll be wonderful to see you when you come back. Um, thank you, everybody. I really wanted to talk about this and I have a great takeaway from it uh, in terms of just using the word, for me, my biggest takeaway, using the word fluidity on every level of experience. It just frees it up, doesn't it? Including, of course, talking about God. Um, so I, uh, so then the line says, build me a sanctuary, a dwelling place so that the divine might dwell in me and among us. And uh, uh, then, thank you. I just really wanted to take it in this direction. Um, yes, I'm sure. Your grandson, yes, my kids, it's like, hey, call people what they want. For them, it's like a complete non-issue. <laughs> it's fascinating to me because it is not a non-issue to me. You know, it's still not. <laughs> All right, let's do a healing prayer. Um, I, didn't, I didn't cue up the words, so I'm just going to sing it. Oh, gosh, you're welcome, Naomi. It was wonderful for me, too. I'll pause the recording here. <laughs> 